This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. Hello, hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. Twenty twenty four is not just any year; it's an election year, and there is a lot at stake on the road to November. Since the last presidential election, we've been through a lot: an ongoing pandemic, growing income equality, housing insecurity, proxy wars, culture wars. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. To top it off, it's starting to look like we'll have to make a choice between the same two candidates from twenty twenty. Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And let me be clear, Trump is not the official candidate, but he is dominating in the polls. I don't know about you, but this is feeling like deja vu. To help parse through what to expect in the coming months, I'm joined by Danielle Kurtzleben, a political correspondent at NPR, and Domenico Montanaro, a senior political editor at NPR. Danielle Domenico, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Hey there. Hey, thanks for having us. Oh my gosh, my pleasure, my pleasure. (laughs) One of the big things that everybody's thinking about this year with the election is the economy. And it feels like something that's often talked about in elections is like inflation, job creation, interest rates. And I think what matters for voters, what matters to me, is if they can actually afford their lives. And lately we've been hearing that the economy is getting better and that we are not in any sort of recession. What do you think front runners in this year's election need to do or say in order to sell voters on their ability to make their lives more affordable? Politics doesn't play to nuance, right? I mean, what Republicans are going to say is just to that point of you saying, hey, this doesn't feel like things are getting better, you know, and they can say all oh, these eggheads are telling us that things are getting better, but hey, it doesn't feel better. You're still paying $20, $30 more at your grocery checkout line uh, than you mm. did before the pandemic. And hey, that's Biden's fault. Now, that's a pretty reductive theory <laughs> on why these things happen, but presidents always get more blame and more credit for the economy all the time. Hmm. Hmm. I feel like I'm going to be the cold, awful cynic on this episode and just say that nothing matters because (laughs) increasingly reality doesn't matter. Issues don't matter. Hmm. This is a thing that we know from polling. People's perceptions of the economy are increasingly tied to their politics and decreasingly tied to what is really happening. So when a Republican is in office, Democrats tend to think the economy is worse than when a Democrat is in office and vice versa. There's a real partisanship that's happening on almost every single issue, which is why Danielle's 100% right, that almost nothing matters except for this increasingly small slice of persuadable voters. To add a little nuance to this, though, it's also about just getting apathetic voters out, right? And so even if that slice of people who could be swayed, who is right now thinking, gosh, I don't know the difference between this party and that party. What do I do? With the party so far apart, that's a smaller and smaller group. Hmm. You have a lot of people, especially Democrats, who feel like 
Uh, I don't know how I feel about Biden. I don't know if I care. I don't know if I like him. He's got to get them out the door. Yeah. And the one thing that they're banking on to get them out the door is that one word, T-R-U-M-P, Trump, because that is what held the Democratic coalition together for a lot of those younger voters to hold their nose to vote for Biden in the first place. And that's what the Biden campaign is banking on again this time. In thinking about some of the chasms between younger voters and older voters, it also makes me think about the conflict that's happening in Gaza right now. That has dominated the latest news cycle cycles for the past going on three months. Opinion has been deeply divided among left-leaning voters. Like in December, polls showed that while the majority of Democratic voters approved of Biden's approach to the war, nearly 40% do not approve. So Where does this leave the Democrats? I personally think that it exacerbates existing divisions. I mean, the issue of Gaza and Israel right now most immediately matters, not in terms of American elections, but to the people dying. Let's be absolutely Mm. clear about that. Mm -hmm. Young voters in 2020, when the Democratic primary was happening, already weren't exactly excited about Joe Biden. They were excited about voting out Donald Trump. They weren't super pumped Hmm. about Joe Biden. And so I think Gaza, if you're a young progressive voter, gives you another really glaring reason to dislike this guy and to not be enthusiastic about him. It increases the uphill battle that Biden has to change the the story that his candidacy is telling young people. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Democratic Party is a more diverse party than the Republican Party. And that means trying to keep everybody under the same tent is like herding cats a little bit, to borrow cliche, because people are going to disagree sometimes on some of these issues. And this is a huge divide. I think it's potentially one that threatens Biden even potentially more so than the economy, because if he if these younger voters don't actually go and vote, that's going to make it a lot more difficult for Biden to win because these elections are determined so much so at the margins. And I think that this disaffection, whether it's the economy, whether it's on the war, can lead people sometimes to either stay home Mm -hmm. or to vote third party. I'm glad you brought up this thought about third party candidates or third parties in general. There is some political diversity among Republican voters and Democratic voters, but there still is a lot of dedication to the two-party system. And I'm hitting a point where I have serious questions about our dedication to this system. What's your take? I'm just going to jump in and start here by saying, like, yes, there is, you say political diversity. I mean, (laughs) regardless of what you call it, it's just like there are voters who are sick of everything. Great way to put that. There are Democrats who say, you know, Biden too liberal, too conservative, and also just flat out too old, like we we need someone new. There does seem to be appetite for a third-party candidate, but the question is who and who, once you pick that candidate, how many people would it drive away and how many people would it really bring in? But it's also the what, and there's just no magic middle in this country on what people believe and whether they agree on things on the policy, on the issues. The Pew Research Center has been pretty good about doing these typologies where you can sort of take a quiz and see what you think. And we really fall into eight or nine different potentially political parties mm-hmm. uh, where people believe you know different things. And disaffection and annoyance with the process isn't enough to then say, okay, now we're going to create a 
party around that that's going to be the majority because it doesn't exist. You said something that I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way. When I think about like having another political party or another major political party, I haven't thought of it necessarily as some sort of middle road, but more maybe as like some sort of agitating factor even possibly. Well, I think that's enough of a motivator to maybe get people to start thinking about a third party, Mm -hmm. but it's not enough to get them to build a platform. Hmm. Danielle, you have said that abortion specifically is an issue that has energized Democrats. Talk to me about how you see abortion shaping this year's election. Yeah, I mean, we have seen in statewide election after statewide election when it's constitutional amendments, ballot measures, that sort of thing uh, about reproductive rights that are on these ballots, voters turn out and they vote in favor of reproductive rights. The overturning of Roe v. Wade really galvanized Democrats and it shook up a few people in the middle, making them wonder, okay, really what are my views on abortion and how far Mm against abortion rights is too far. And Republicans, Republicans have been kind of tiptoeing around this issue. Yes, you want to appeal to the evangelical voters who are very, very opposed to abortion, but you don't want to come off as too draconian in the face of things like, for example, the uh, the woman in Texas who was told she should carry a fetus with little chance of living Survival, to term. Right. That's mm-hmm. yes, yeah. And stories like that really, really upset voters, understandably. It's that kind of gray area, upsetting area that Republicans don't like to discuss because it it, it turns what feels to some like a black and white issue into a very messy issue. Hmm. Hmm. We've been talking a lot about consequential voting blocks and consequential groups to our elections. But there's one big voting block in particular that has been in crisis lately. And in my humble opinion, doesn't get talked about maybe in the way that that they should. And that is men. They are struggling by many different measures, like this is true when it comes to schools, where they are academically underperforming across the board and work, where the wages of most men are lower today than they were in 1979. Do we matter? I don't know. It's like a thing. No one wants to talk about men, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not a- <laughs> Just going to pop my knuckles over here and <laughs> stretch out and get ready for this question. But I wonder, like, how do you see the state of men affecting the election? Danielle, you seem ready to chomp at the bit. Oh, my goodness. Can you tack on an extra hour or two to this show? Because I could... I think it's another podcast. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. How do I see men affecting this election? I mean, one thing. I mean, one of the most obvious and I think undercovered aspects of Trump is how blatantly he uses masculinity and very overt appeals to men to campaign. I mean, it's part of his Make America Great Again story he's telling is to wind the clock back to a time when men felt better about their prospects. And so how do I see it affecting the election is mainly Trump is going to continue to make those appeals to manufacturing and construction working guys saying, hey, I'm going to bring back manufacturing. I'm going to impose tariffs on this country and that country, and we have to go after China He's going to do all of that all over again. And Biden will try to make his appeals in his own way, talking about unionization and Mm. that sort of thing. When you hear candidates talk about manufacturing and talk about 
construction. Yes, they're talking to manufacturing towns, the Rust Belt, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But make no mistake, they're talking to men. Hmm. I mean, if you want to talk about how men's fortunes change, I mean, that's a different conversation that candidates don't talk about enough on the trail, but it very well might involve getting men into healthcare professions. The fastest growing professions in this country are healthcare. Right. And those are places where women dominate currently. Yes. They're called pink collar jobs. And and so like, yeah, trying to tell a lot of men like, hey, why don't you go do one of these nurturing jobs? I mean, that doesn't fly necessarily for a lot of cultural reasons. But Hmm. if those jobs are well paying and not all of them are, to be clear, but if if those jobs are well-paying and growing, I mean, that's where longer-term change is happening. But I don't think you'll hear Trump and maybe not Biden make that case. Interesting. I think we're in an American crack-up in a lot of ways. You know, I think that our, there's massive political volatility. Mm-hmm. There's huge economic volatility. AI, we're not 100% sure how that's going to affect everything. Correct. But clearly, yeah. that's going to mean a more of a funneling of the kinds of jobs that men were doing in many respects. And I think that that is going to be something that we're going to have to telescope ourselves out a little bit of that to understand why things are so volatile, why things are so people are so angry and irritable. There's a lot of volatility. People don't necessarily love change. And when that change is happening, when you're in it, it feels not great. Hmm, hmm. I got one last question for y'all. We're talking big picture, but what could materially change if Biden wins or if Trump wins? Domenico, I'd love to hear from you. There's no greater difference between two people and two philosophies and visions for the country than Trump and Biden. Look at what happened with the Supreme Court. Look at the three nominees who Trump was able to put on the Supreme Court and how that's changing society for the next 30 years or so. You know, you can be guaranteed that if Hillary Clinton were president, Roe v. Wade would still be upheld Hmm. at the Supreme Court. And you might even have a much stronger supermajority for the quote-unquote liberals at the Supreme Court. And that matters. That's a big deal. How the country is viewed on the world stage is a big deal. I always say that presidents control two things most directly, foreign policy and judges. And look at how Trump has been viewed and what he's done with judges so differently than what a Democrat in office would have done. So for those that think that uh, it doesn't matter, things will be what they are, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. Hmm. Hmm. Fully agree. I mean, it's, it is it is easy. I, I agree to look around at things and especially at a historically unproductive Congress and say, well, you know, nothing's going to happen anyway. But no, the presidency does matter. One other possibility is that, you know, Trump did everything within his power to weaponize the executive branch, to change what he could, to implement the policies he could in some, you know, for example, the quote unquote Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. And there's every indication to say that he would do something similar this time around. There is a document that I encourage people to look up. It's called Project 2025. Yeah, that. The Heritage Foundation and a bunch of conservative organizations have put together to say, hey, next president, here's an array of stuff you could do in the executive branch to change government, whether it's gutting uh, civil service jobs, whether it's making it difficult or illegal uh, to mail abortion pills. There's any number of things. Mm. But, oh, the presidency very much matters in unforeseen ways, depending on what cases make it to the Supreme Court Mm what the makeup of Congress is, it very much matters. Yeah. Whether or not you accept the peaceful transfer of power. 
Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I, I can't believe I overlooked that. <laughs> I can't believe I have to think about that. But yeah. 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 Danielle Domenico, thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. That was Danielle Kurtzleben and Domenico Montanaro of NPR Politics. Coming up, dry January is a staple on New Year's resolutions, but what would it look like to live in a more sober world? There's a growing movement of people who want to be sober indefinitely. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Homes.com. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, local amenities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. It's January, which means a lot of people out there are starting to work on some New Year's resolutions. Maybe you're going to learn to knit. Maybe you're going to start going to the gym more. But many people are starting the year off by taking a break from alcohol, at least for this month. Last year, one in seven adults participated in dry January. I've done a few myself. Some people need a break after a few too many holiday parties. Others use Dry January to reflect on their relationship with alcohol or to rethink it entirely. But my guest says we don't need to wait for January to come around. First, I want to say I honor anyone's decision to be mindful about their intake of something that's become habitual. That's Anna Marie Cox. That said, if you suspect you have an, a real problem or that your relationship to alcohol is unhealthy, no time like the present. Anna is a writer and journalist. Last year, she wrote a column for The Cut called Sober Questioning. And while she's been sober for 13 years, she's watched more and more people opt out of drinking, be it out of preference or need. And the idea that you could not feel like drinking, I think, is just turned everything a little bit. The percentage of people who drink in this country has been pretty stable for the past couple decades. But now, one-third of Americans say they want to drink less. The appeal of a more sober lifestyle is even showing up in bars, where I'm seeing non-alcoholic options on menus. In bars. People are cashing in. And the alcohol-free beverage sector is now a multi-billion dollar industry. But how does the rise of sober curiosity jive with our alcohol-centric culture? And what would it look like to live in a more sober world? Anna, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Good to be here. 
It's great to have you. You wrote in your column for The Cut called Sober Questioning that sobriety was life-saving for you, but you also framed it as something everyone should try at least once, like camping. Me, myself, I am meant to be an indoor cat, (laughs) but I I think that's such an interesting way to put it. How did you come to that philosophy, even though you, like you said, came to sobriety not as a visitor? I do think that living in this world without alcohol is like visiting a different country or speaking a different language. Your brain has to work slightly differently. And Mm. you become conscious of other people in a way that you weren't conscious of them before. And I think that that's just healthy. It's always a good idea to be mindful about something that you had not been mindful about before. Mm-hmm. How is this chemical affecting my world? How is it affecting my relationships? How is it affecting my body? Hmm. You know, how do I see differently if it's not an option to just have a drink after work? What does it do to who I see hmm. and how much time I spend by myself? What does it do to the, t- the quality of time that I have by myself? So I think, I think it's a worthwhile place to visit. Our conversation in this episode isn't necessarily about our country's relationship to drinking, which I don't think has changed that much, but more about our relationship to not drinking. Having been sober for 13 years, would you agree that there's been a shift in our society's relationship to not drinking? And and if you do agree with that thought, where do you see that shift happening? I think there is something happening. I think part of it has to do with the rise of marijuana Mm. as a option. Say more about that. Well, I think it's funny to hear people say, you know, I don't like what alcohol does for me. Instead, I'm going to smoke. Now, people have kind of always had the option of pot, right? Always. But it's so much more socially acceptable now. Oh, it's also legal in many states as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in Texas. So sometimes I forget. Oh, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, (laughs) even, even being in New York, I forget, like, honestly, how legal it actually is in many other states. Even more than legal, even more than socially accepted, it's just a part of people's lives. It's an option. And I think that having that as an option makes people think of drinking as an option, too. Hmm. And I think also, I mean, there's probably a sort of sad chapter here, which is about the rise of the opioid epidemic, which put Hmm. young people by the hundreds of thousands in danger and gave them exposure to different kinds of sobriety. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. The numbers of people who know someone who's been affected by alcohol or drug abuse mm-hmm. in the past year or so, I mean, it's like the social fabric of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. It's something that touches everybody. Yeah. I wonder, you know, we're talking about all these trends that we're noticing that could be possible factors as to why there's been this rise in Sober curiosity, I guess. What has it been like to watch these changes as someone who is 13 years sober? I welcome visitors to my country. What I feel like I want to note when you ask me that question is the change in my own feelings Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about the rise in popularity of my neighborhood. Mm. Say more. At first, when this trend started to take hold or I noticed more people becoming curious about sobriety and not curious about recovery, like to distinguish between the two, right? Like they just wanted to drink less or try sobriety, but weren't interested in like the recovery journey that I'm, you know, forced to be on. I felt very protective. I noticed my own reaction of like resentment because these people are coming by choice. They have a choice Hmm. and they can leave. 
while I love where I live, if I walked out the door, I don't think I'd make it back. Hmm. People come and they have opinions. The metaphor of a gentrified neighborhood actually works pretty well <laughs> in some ways because people have opinions about it. They're like, oh, I don't like this or I don't like that or AA's, done. I don't you know, like, oh. But you're like, this is this is my home. So this is it for me, guys. This is it, you know. But I think where I've landed is in a place where, you know, the neighborhood and gentrification metaphors fall apart, which is that there's always room for more. Hmm. You know, like this is this is a wonderful place. Like the place where I am at can be hard to be because there's no filters and no I shouldn't say there's no options to distract myself or to insulate myself. They're just not as immediate. But I'm not losing anything like by more people coming. I'm not losing anything by there being more options. No one's going to knock down the neighborhood bar, as it were, and like build something fancier. Mm. Like, I'm no one's doing anything for my property taxes. <laughs> like, why be suspicious of other people's motives? Why try to tell them that they got here the wrong way? Mm. Yeah, like try it out. Hmm. I could see that how that can be a complicated tension to hold especially as there is like this commodification, there's these new products springing out. I could see where it's, it's kind of like, okay, well, now there's all these people here, then you're going to... Or who feel like they know how to do it better than me, which is also like, that's super annoying. Oh, yeah. There are these young, sober people that are like, I could also make money. I could commodify my, <laughs> yeah, my sobriety yeah. in some way. I say the positive part of that, weirdly, is the actual commodity of... Um, low alcohol or non-alcohol beverages. And the less great part of that to me is sometimes the sobriety coaching stuff. Mm. What works for people works for people. And I don't ever want to take away something that's working for somebody. But that's also happening. It's an industry now. Oh, yeah. Something you've reflected on as a sober person, and, and I can attest to as a person who just doesn't always feel like drinking, there's like an expectation that alcohol is always going to be central to our social interactions. How does that shape our social lives? I think if nothing else, it brings a specific commodity into all social interactions. Hmm. Unless you're brewing your own beer and bottling your own wine, you're basically putting a tax on your friends. I mean, that's a really good point. It costs money to drink. Let me lay another one on you about this, which is that you're also asking them to donate some of their precious brain cells. That I did know. Yeah. I mean, alcohol is a poison. Not to put too fine a point on it, but you're saying like, all right, in order for us to really sit down and have fun together, <laughs> like what we're all going to need to do is like ingest a modern amount of poison. I feel like I'm verging into like an alcohol is bad and no one should drink it territory. I'm just mm -hmm. putting together the argument a little bit here. You're saying... We probably need something mm. else among us to have fun. Like, I don't trust that we're just going to mm. be able to vibe. I don't trust that we can simply relax together. Like, we're going to need this other thing. So everybody bring the other thing that we're all going to share. And there are historical religious uses of various chemicals. I am an advocate of using mm. what you need to feel better. I am not prohibitionist about this. But we need to be very aware and thoughtful about it. And I think my problem with alcohol in our culture is that we don't think about it. We don't think about what we're asking of people. We don't think about the message that we're sending when it has become so central to the ways that we relate to each mm. other. What might our lives look like if we didn't 
default to socializing or or celebrating specifically with alcohol as a default? I think, among other things, it would be a more active culture. Hmm. Just to be totally honest, because I think one of the things that I've when people ask, like, what can I do for my friends who are nearly sober? One of the things I say is like, take them to do stuff. Hmm. Let's go rock climbing. Let's go on a walk. Let's go paint something. Let's go to the Michaels and buy some stuff for crafts. Like doing things. Yeah. Sober karaoke is one of my very favorite things in the world. Ooh, I love that. I mean, I love karaoke anyway, because <laughs> I love attention. That's why I'm hosting a podcast. Yeah. Well, it one of the sort of humps you have to get over if you're going to have like a non-drinking social situation is like, what do we do with our hands? Like, how do we talk to each other? And this is another thing that bars do, right? Is um, it gives you kind of a, a context to be like, hey, what's up? Yeah, just some random person. And also you have somewhere to put your hands. Put Whether your you're hands. holding a drink, you put it on the bar. Right. I really love that gaming has become so popular. Ooh, yeah. I did not grow up as a gamer. I remember going over to some other kid's house to play Dungeons and Dragons. And I was, I think what must happen is the guy that was a dungeon master wasn't very good. So it's just like, well, f- this. I'm out. Like, I don't like <laughs> pretending to be an elf. But now... I'm reconsidering because I love this idea that adults are getting together. And and I know that some places they also drink while they do this, right? But that's not what you're doing. It's not the point. Yeah. I think people would just be doing more stuff. I think maybe other cultures that just don't have as much emphasis on alcohol are just more thoughtful in general. But I think that we Americans are going to need to like sub in stuff for a little while. (laughs) We're not going to be getting (laughs) straight to just the quiet (laughs) contemplation in in the comfortable silences that fall between friends. You make a really good point, though. Like, when you're a kid, they have, like, so many interests. And they have, like, their swim (laughs) class and their dance class. And they're, like, drawing. And they're just, like, I'm learning a language. Children with their interests. Yeah, they're always doing stuff. And it's cool. I mean, I did a lot of stuff when I was a kid. But I feel like as an adult, I was talking to one of my best friends a couple weeks ago. And she and I were just like, oh, remember hobbies? Remember Doing stuff other than going out to eat, going out to have a drink. Yeah. Remember, like, doing stuff? And we're going to take a tap dancing class in January, which I'm really excited about. I love it. When you have any sort of default and you let go of that, you release that, it leaves a lot of space for new experiences and new opportunities. And I think that that's something that I think a lot of people need, myself especially in the wintertime. If I was going to give advice, I guess, about Dry January, I think. In pop psychology in general, they, people talk about it's easier to add than subtract, right? To mm. add a habit than subtract mm. a habit. So do dry January, but maybe it always should be paired with something else that you want to do, that, that you tap dance, you know. Needlepoint. Needlepoint, bold, bouldering, doing something out in the world, I think is actually a wonderful mm. option. We've been discussing how many people are embracing sober curiosity and how there seems to be less of a stigma around deciding not to drink at dinner or during a night out. But there's definitely still a stigma around alcoholism. How can the sober curious or anybody be better allies to those who are in recovery? Going out for drinks with everybody and uh, your turn comes around and you usually order a wine, but it's you're doing dry January. Don't say like, no, I'm, happy. I'm doing dry January. Maybe just, just say like, ah, oh, not tonight. Not tonight. This is going to sound really crazy, but maybe just don't crow about it too much. You don't have to keep it a secret, but it'd be cool to take, just make it normal to not order a drink. There, that's what you could do. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people who do dry January are doing it just because they want to, but still find it something of a struggle, Mm. right? Still 
find themselves challenged by it. I don't know. I guess just know that it's not easy for everybody. Yeah, just try to remember that. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Hmm. You said to my producer that you think of sobriety as just being in the world more. So how has just being in the world been important in your life? Well, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it kind of sucks. I mean, really experiencing life, like everything that there is in life. I mean, if it was great, everyone would do it. (laughs) (laughs) And if it was great all the time, there wouldn't be any reason to escape. Hmm. But life has all the things. Life has terrible joys and it has horrendous pain. It is a is a challenge just to always be where I am in the moment, Hmm. to not be able to hurry things along pharmacologically. And you hear people say like, I'm grateful. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. And it's like, how could you be grateful? I am so grateful. I am so grateful to have the life that I have today. Because if I was able to drink and not, wreck lives, including my own, I wouldn't have the realness of the experience that I have today. Hmm. I don't think your gratitude sounds strange. I don't think it sounds strange at all. I wish that I could bottle it and give it to people. Maybe make some money. I don't know. That was a joke. (laughs) Well, Anna, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel very grateful that we got to speak today. I am as well. Thanks again to Anna Marie Cox. You can find her work at The New Republic, NBC, and elsewhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. This is Jody. I was thinking today about when the Notre Dame was burning down a couple of years ago in Paris and how my Instagram feed looked. Everyone was sharing beautiful photos of them in front of this cathedral and lamenting about 
what a loss humanity was taking with this beautiful piece of architecture that was being burnt to the ground. Today, I read an article in NPR that more than 100 heritage sites in Vaza have been destroyed by bombings. This includes the Omari Mosque from the 7th century, which is a good bit older than the Notre Dame, and my feed does not look the same. I don't see people responding the same way that they did when the Notre Dame was burning. Jody, I am so grateful that you called him. We're watching so many different places of worship and, as you mentioned, World Heritage Sites that have basically turned to rubble. And even more than that, we're seeing the homes and schools of everyday people turned to dust. And so your tears are absolutely appropriate in this situation. I think there's definitely the Parisian obsession and this love affair that many Americans have with French culture at play, for sure. But also, I think that what you're getting at is a long tradition of Americans turning their attention away from regions of the world where they might not feel that same kinship. Now, I'm not talking about all Americans. There are plenty of Americans who are from these regions, who have visited or maybe lived over there for periods of time. But... What you're seeing on your feet is a reflection, I think, of American culture, for better or for worse. But what I do see in this moment with your question and also with some of the news coverage that I've seen is a lot of American people who are dedicated to learning more about the cultures and the histories, plural, that are contained in the Levantine region. I don't know if I have the most incisive answer to your question. And honestly, I have to say, working through this with you right now has made me a little bit sad at how apathetic sometimes Americans can be when the rest of the world is hurting. But you've brought up a very important question, and it's been on your mind and heart. It's been on mine as well. And I suspect it's something that's also been on the minds and hearts of a lot of our listeners out there. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Placek, Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Hannah Glovna, Becky Brown, Quasi Lee. We had fact checking help from Susie Cummings. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. 
Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. 